Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 66, the second part of verse 2. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. I'm using that verse as a jumping off point. It speaks volumes to us, and hopefully uh, you are excited to hear more about the subject of pride and humility. Thank you. (laughs) What do you think is the key? Let me just rephrase. How many people want to grow in godliness, really? Want to become more like Jesus growing in godliness? If you do, it, there's something that's key to that. What might be the key to growing in godliness, do you think? Humility. Thank you, humility. Begs the question, doesn't it? I think it's safe to say that most all of us, if not everybody in our church, wants a deeper relationship with the Lord. Is that a fair statement? More intimacy with Christ? Let me know what spiritual disciplines are. We practice spiritual disciplines. Prayer, Bible study, fasting, worship. There's a whole list of spiritual disciplines. Are they helpful? Why do we engage them? Why do we engage them? Why do we practice spiritual disciplines? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we worship? Why do we pray? Why do we fast? Why do we give? Why do we do all these things, do you think? Yeah, because we have to do them, right? No, we do them because we see them as avenues, as implementations of us growing closer to the Lord and becoming more like him. Is that a fair statement? While those things should lead us to a deeper relationship with Jesus by themselves, they will not do it. By themselves, they will not do it. You need something else. Spiritual maturity cannot happen without one crucial virtue. What virtue might that be? Humility. You can study the Bible. You can know the Bible from cover to cover. You can, you can be fasting twice a week like the Pharisees bragged. You give a tenth of all you have. You can pray. You can do all those things. But with humil- without humility, guess what? They don't do a thing. They just make you more religious. They just make you more pharisaical. In that passage in Isaiah, he says, This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That verse, I think, has something significant to say about a deeper relationship with the Lord. Again, if you witness, you share the gospel, you serve, you pray, you study your Bible, but do do not grow in this virtue, God will still oppose you. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. God will still oppose you. The Bible warns us. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How does God oppose us? He does so basically by hiding himself from us, 
by withdrawing from us, by removing his hand of grace. He demonstrates his grace to us by drawing us into a deeper relationship with him. Psalm 138. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. You see, the psalmist says he distances himself. Humility is the chief thing in the Christian life. What's the chief thing in the Christian life? Do you believe that? Absolutely. He tells us this. You can have all the other stuff, but if you lack humility, it doesn't matter. Humility, you can't love without it. You simply can't love without humility. You can't obey without humility. You can't serve without humility. And humility is not self-hatred. It is not a lack of confidence. It is the ability to see yourself as God sees you, to see yourself through God's eyes. A humble person increasingly sees himself as he really is. What does the Bible say about us? Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. This is a humble person. A humble person sees him or herself as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. When was the last time you thought about yourself that way? (laughs) And ironically, such humility lays the foundation actually for contentment, and a healthy view of self. When you have the right perspective, when you have God's perspective of who you are, now you're ready to go. In contrast, pride is spiritual blindness. Pride is spiritual blindness. Unfortunately, pride is also the sin to which we are most blind. We can't see our pride. Why? Because we're so full of it. Not me, Pastor. You especially. <laughs> if you think you're okay, if you think you're doing great, I'm doing good. Look at, look at how God has blessed me. Look at it. Beware. You've got to see yourself as what? Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Needy. See, pride blinds us to the truth of ourselves. I don't want to say that. I, don't say that about me. I'm not saying it about you. That's God's. You argue with him, not me. A look again at Isaiah 66 too. You see this, I think, is a significant progression. Humility always leads to real contrition. And then deepens into trembling at God's word. Humility sensitizes us to scripture. It motivates and equips us to hear. To hear. There's a difference between listening and hearing, isn't there? Have you ever said, you're not hearing me? (laughs) You may be listening, but you're not hearing me. Paul's humility led him to work out his salvation with what? Fear and trembling. David's humility led him to, as Psalm 2 says, rejoice with trembling. Humility enhances our love for God's word. Now, if you work backwards from that, if you don't love God's word, what does that say? Prideful, that's right. Prideful. With living faith, we joyfully tremble before the scriptures and we are eager to obey, seeking God's encouragement and seeking God's correction. God, you direct my steps. This is why Proverbs says, acknowledge him in all your ways. Don't lean on your own understanding. And he'll direct your steps. Pride 
metastasizes into something more dreadful. Pride is this cancerous root of all other sin and all other evil. Pride, pride. Don't diminish pride in your thinking. Don't think it's no big deal. Don't think, not me, not me. Yes, you. Instead of contrition, pride leads to self-centeredness. Instead of contrition, pride leads to self-righteousness. You want to puff yourself up. Look at me. I got the goods. I've got it all together. Instead of trembling at God's word, self-righteousness can actually cause us to despise or disregard God's word. We pay lip service to it at best because of the pride in our life. This can happen even to well-intentioned believers. Do you remember when Nathan confronted King David? He confronted him over about his sin with Bathsheba, didn't he? And he asked David this, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? See, David's pride deceived him into believing he could get away with adultery and murder. In the same way, when we are deliberately disobedient, it's because we do not take God seriously. We, too, have despised God. We've despised his word because we feel that we are, like David, beyond his judgments. Nothing happens immediately. No judgment immediately. I made it. Skating free. So why is humility the key to intimacy with God? Well, since humility results in trembling at God's word... It brings us into real communion with God. It sensitizes us to his voice. It opens our ears to his instructions and deepens our gratitude. How many are thankful for the Bible? I mean, really thankful. God, thank you for your word. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for revealing what you and who you are and what you want and how we get a relationship with you. Humility leads us into a greater dependence upon God because we know our desperate need for him. Desperately. So the Bible tells us that God esteems the humble. We're sensitive to him. We're sensitive to him. We long, we love his word. We love what he says. It's the truth. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15 says, He dwells with the contrite and lowly. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, He blesses the poor in spirit. James chapter 4, He gives grace to the humble. Psalm 25, verse 9, He guides the humble and teaches them His way. Humility is indeed the key to intimacy with God. And this truth has tremendous implications for your spiritual growth, my spiritual growth. What are those? First, it affects our approach to the Bible. Humility is the necessary foundation for the life-shaping encounters with Scripture. How many want the Bible to affect their life, shape their life? Well, not all of you. Okay. Now, it's not uncommon for us periodically, once in a while, to become a little bored with reading the Bible, reading God's Word. I mean, all of us have experienced that at some point. But if apathy is a long-term pattern towards God's Word, the problem could be deep-seated pride. Deep-seated pride. You see, the proud don't need God. They don't need God. Therefore, they have a little need for his word. You may attend church, you may serve, you may go through all the machinations of ministry, if you will. 
You may be on the worship team. Oh, my gosh. And in the end, however, you may feel quite competent to take care of yourself. I, I got this. No problem. People like that don't know the depths of their sinfulness. They don't know their need of his unlimited, necessary grace. Proverbs 27. He who is full loathes honey. But to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. The greater your humility, the more you will extract spiritual food from the Bible. You'll eat it up. And I don't mean reading daily for a quota. I mean, you'll go to the word. You can hardly wait to get to it, to read it. So you want God to speak to you. You'll be eating it up. Second, humility's central role in spiritual growth gives us a new perspective of our temptations and our failures. How is that? Well, because humility is so important, God will let us fail our way into true self-knowledge. That may sound strange to you, but he will let us fail our way into true self-knowledge. Have you ever asked God to deliver you from some sin and not seen any change? <laughs> if you're serious, all of us have experienced that, right? What's going on there? Well, God often lets us stew in our problems to deepen our humility, our need for him. Our need for humility is sometimes greater than our need for deliverance. Think about that. Remember Paul's experience? He recounts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He'd been, he'd been taken up to the third heaven and seen things that words cannot express. He can't even communicate the things he experienced and saw. So you can imagine, that gets you pretty puffed up. Could, right? So Paul says this in chapter 12. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. <coughs> but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. What's going on there? There's a greater need for humility than a greater need for deliverance. Paul three times says, take this thing away from me. God says, mm, no, you need this. This is the apostle Paul. Somebody help me. If God humbled Paul in that way, how much more will he humble you and I? Third, a proper understanding of humility sheds new light. <clears throat> on lingering feelings of inadequacy. Excuse me, I have to have a drink. I'm, I've got a word stuck in my throat. <laughs> lingering feelings of inadequacy. I don't know about you. <clears throat> <laughs> but I expected to feel better about myself as I conquered different issues in my life. You make progress. You think you're making progress. You should be feeling better about yourself. Whoa, well, I got that one down. But instead, I felt increasingly inadequate, increasingly sinful, as I have drawn closer to the Lord. I'm learning that this is a positive thing. I don't lament it anymore. It's a positive thing. A growing awareness <coughs> of our sinfulness could indeed be a sign of growing humility and 
a foretaste of deeper intimacy with God. Example. In the year 55 AD, the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Does that sound like humility? Yeah. Seven years later, he writes this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. I am less than the least of all God's people. And then five years after that, he wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Do you see a progression there? Increasing awareness of his sinfulness. Least of the apostles to less than the least of God's people to the worst of sinners. Every saint growing in intimacy with God should feel this way. And a deepening sense of God's love, his grace, his joy will accompany those feelings of lowliness. Fourth, when we realize that humility leads to intimacy with God, it has tremendous implications for how we minister to others. What do you think should be the most fundamental goal of discipleship? Teach people how to read the Bible. Teach people how to pray. Make sure they come to church. They go to mini church. They know how to fast. They give. What do you think is the most fundamental goal of discipleship? You're discipling somebody. What do you want them to learn more than anything else? <coughs> humility. To grow in humility. Everything else stems from that. As if you've been paying attention, as you know. Well, how do we do this? How, how, when you're discipling somebody, how do you see to it? How do you encourage them to grow in humility? Well, first of all, you show them God's glory, who he really is, and then their own sinfulness, the disparity between the two. This is, by the way, not a popular message. People do not like to, like Christians, I'm not, I'm not that bad. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. I pray. I do all this stuff. You are full of pride. Listen to you. If you're truly humble, you would say, I am the worst. You follow Paul's example. No one can understand the love of God until this foundation has been laid. You cannot understand God's love unless you understand how absolutely desperate you are. For many, however, the goal of ministry has become enhanced self-esteem. We want to make people happy, not humble, and certainly not holy, right? That's what we find. The church becomes a therapy session. People feel good about themselves. No, I want you to feel right about yourself. I want you to see how God views you so that you stay on the path of humility. We think people need to feel good about themselves rather than good about the God who alone has taken the initiative to save them from their sins. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Our culture, too, talks, talks to us and tells us that man's primary problem is low self-esteem. Really? Well, what does the Bible say? You know that dusty old irrelevant book called the Bible? What does the Bible say? Psalm 36. An oracle is within my heart. 
concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Have you ever tried to lead somebody to the Lord and failed? Anybody, anybody have that experience? Yeah. So many of our efforts at evangelism fail. And why is that? It's because we assume that people have a felt need for God in their life when they seldom do. If I'm an evangelist, somebody, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm a fruit checker. I test the fruit. I want the low-hanging fruit, <laughs> that which God has already prepared. So all I have to do is tell them good news. They go, oh, wow, how long has that been around? I want that. <laughs> no, we assume that people, people, people have a felt need for God when they don't. They could care less. I don't care what you say. As we read in Psalm 36, David tells us most people think too highly of themselves to see their need for God. Does that mean we shouldn't evangelize? No, but just evangelize wisely. Listen to people. Query them, ask them. We don't need God, we don't love God until we have been humbled. It's that simple. God is only intimate with the person who has been thoroughly humbled, the person who sees him or herself from God's perspective. What, doesn't, doesn't God look down and smile on me? What do you think? <laughs> yes, he does. He loves you like any parent loves their child. But you look at your child, and you know that little sinner can bust out any minute. <laughs> little Isaiah, he's a sweet little thing now, isn't he? He's just a precious little baby. But guess what? If he hasn't learned it yet, it's going to start coming. No. The very first word kids learn, no. Where'd that come from? Although God loves us, and he even loves the arrogant, he will not be intimate with them until they are what? Humbled. Fifth point. Focusing on humility highlights, as we mentioned earlier, an inherent danger in spiritual, the practice of spiritual disciplines. Because we can take, and those of you who practice spiritual disciplines, you can take a secret pride in your Bible reading. You can take a secret pride in your prayer life. You can take a secret pride in your service. Mary had to fight this off yesterday, right? Proverbs 31 woman. Look at me. I'm a Proverbs 31 woman. Learn from me. She's battling pride the whole time. Even in preparing the message, she was battling pride. God, keep me humble, right? You understand the secret. So she's married to Alan. The most humble man in the church. Don't get prideful now. These practices, these spiritual disciplines that we secretly take pride in can escalate our arrogance and actually separate us from God. The very things we think are drawing us closer to him actually serve to separate us because we're so prideful about him. Our efforts to find him become the very wedge that distances us from him. What about the Pharisees? Were the Pharisees a good example of this? Yeah. What do you think angered Jesus the most about the Pharisees? Yeah, their arrogance and their pride. He was most angry at that. 
This is why the spiritual disciplines by themselves can never, never, never create intimacy with God. Well, if that's all true, how then can I grow in humility? Would you like to know that? I've got some solutions for you. Are you ready? Number one, we must admit that we are proud. Right, Brian? We must admit that we are proud, even if we can't see obvious evidence of our pride and our arrogance. See, we can sit there and feel pretty good about ourselves, can't we? Don't be seduced. Psalm 19. Who can discern his errors? The obvious implication is nobody can. Forgive my hidden faults, pleaded David. James wrote in James chapter 4 again, humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. Who will lift you up? You want, it, you want God to lift you up? What should you do first? Humble yourself. Confess your pride. Even before you see it. The automatic assumption should be, God, I'm one prideful person. So what's the first step to growing in humility? <laughs> confess your pride. Admit it, confess it. Second, seek knowledge of God. Not just about God, seek knowledge of God. Knowing him produces humility. In Psalm 36, we read this. In your light, we see light. It's only in his light that we actually see ourselves accurately. We're humble by looking at God, not ourselves. How many have a mirror at home? You look in the mirror, you go, oh, I'm so good looking. <laughs> Primping and getting our hair in place. Look at me. Beware of looking at yourself. Everyone who sees God in his majesty will also see himself with clarity. This is one of the greatest passages of scripture to illustrate that point. Isaiah chapter 6. Many of you are already aware of it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you imagine that? God pulls the curtain back, gives Isaiah a vision of himself sitting on the throne in his awesome glory. Would that be cool? Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet. Two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And how does Isaiah respond when he has this vision? He goes, wow, that's cool. No. He sees God. And in seeing God now, he sees himself more clearly. What does he say? Woe, woe to me. I am ruined. I'm a man with a lousy, dirty mouth. And I live among a people with dirty mouths. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He's undone. He's humbled. He's got no leg to stand on. He sees himself clearly In the face of seeing God. Where do we see God? Where do we see God? In his word. In his word. Seek to know God in the beauty of his holiness. Pray for 
spiritual illumination. You cannot see God or yourself without his aid. God, show me. Show me. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Show me. Is God eager to be found? Yes. He is eager to be found. He says, if you seek me, I'll be found by you. Isn't that glorious? You seek him. You seek him. We all, we've all experienced that to one degree with, with other people. We, we seek a relationship. We seek, we're unrelenting. We can wear them down, can't we? We can get that relationship. We don't wear God down, but he allows us in. He tests our sincerity. Is it just lip service or are we for real? Now, here's a third point. I neglected to put point three in your notes, so you can do that yourself. You can write in the margin if there's room. Finally, to grow in humility, immerse yourself in God's word. God's word is a spiritual mirror in which we see ourselves with clarity. James says, anyone who listens to the word of God but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror, walks away, forgets what he looked like. Somebody will say to me after a sermon, after a message, you say, oh, pastor, that was such a great message. My response typically is, it's only great if you do something with it. (laughs) Otherwise, it's one ear and out the other, right? Do something with it. Be a doer, not just simply a hearer of the word. The mirror, when you look into God's word, it reflects us. It reflects us. It reflects our foolishness in contrast to God's wisdom. It reflects our selfishness in the light of God's love. It reflects our weakness in contrast to his strength. In other words, the mirror, the Bible, reveals my immense need. I can do nothing by myself. Isaiah was humbled in the light of Christ's glory. Look at this, John chapter 12. Even after Jesus had done all these miracles, miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and who has the arm of the Lord been real? To whom? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah, Isaiah was humbled in the light of Christ's glory. And then from that perspective, he wrote the words in Isaiah 15, Isaiah 57. Well, this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is what? Contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Who revives us? God does. Your therapist does not revive you. God does the reviving. It's that simple. Go to your Bible. Spend time in your Bible. Get to know him more and more and more intimately. and Get to realize what you really are like and your desperate need for him. He dwells with the humble. Pursue God, you'll find humility. Pursue humility, you'll find God. Amen? Now, I have just enough time for four myths about humility. How many want, you want me to do it? You want me to finish this? Or you want to just, you want to leave? You had enough of me. Okay. Four myths about humility. Number one, 
The humble look down on themselves and their abilities. True or false? The humble look down on themselves and their abilities. Well, what do you think? Let's have a vote. How many think that's true? How many think it's false? A lot of you aren't voting. <laughs> the truly humble recognize their sinful inability to please the holy and righteous God. Remember the parable Jesus taught about the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke chapter 18? The Pharisee stood before God and said, what? I thank you that I'm not like other men. Is there a strong temptation to, be, to say that? Justin, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I'm not like Chong behind you. <laughs> Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. What? Now, in the Greek text, the definite article is there, so it's really the sinner. He views himself as the sinner, the worst, just like Paul. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The truly humble rejoice. They rejoice in the magnitude of God's transforming grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is a marvelous verse. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Does that cause rejoicing? What has he done? He's washed us, he's sanctified us, he's justified us. He's done it. Awesome. The humble recognize that, and they rejoice in that. They understand that God has uniquely gifted them for kingdom service. He has enabled them through the indwelling Holy Spirit to display his glory in confident ministry. So they don't look down on themselves. They don't diminish themselves. They acknowledge him. Are you with me? Ready for the second myth? The humble let everyone walk all over them. True or false? Humble Christians go to great lengths to maintain harmonious relationships, even with their enemies. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with most people. Everyone, even your enemy, huh? But humble Christians also know that Christian service is no place for wimps. God's greatest servants through the ages have boldly asserted the truths of Scripture in the face of ridicule, persecution, even death. You read the book of Acts, and you read about the apostles consistently preaching boldly to unreceptive audiences. People reject them, chase them out of town, beat them up, leave them for dead, like Paul. Paul prays for boldness. Prays for boldness. Ephesians chapter 6. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul admonishes Timothy to resist the natural inclination toward timidity. 2 Timothy chapter 1. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of what? Power, love, and self-discipline. You don't have to be timid. You don't have to shrink back. Scripture actually encourages us, encourages us to boast boldly about the things God has done, while it strictly warns us not to boast about ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But let him who, let him who boasts, boast in who? The Lord. 
For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. How many want God to commend them? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. How many like to take credit for stuff in their life? Myth number three. The humble do not strive for excellence. True or false? When God calls us to humility, he calls us to submission, not mediocrity. Submission, not mediocrity. If you study the sacrificial system that God set up in the Old Testament, you see that there's a standard of excellence in service. I mean, God demanded what? Everything done exactly as he designed it. No cutting corners. The New Testament standard is certainly no lower and perhaps even higher as God calls us to present ourselves to him as not dead sacrifices, but what? Living sacrifices. Living sacrifice. <laughs> Living sacrifice. That's the mentality of a true servant, isn't it? Humble people don't stumble and bumble their way through ministry, shuffling their feet and murmuring, oh, shucks, apologies about their all too obvious inadequacies. Oh, I'm just nothing. I'm just, shut up. <laughs> Humble people eagerly display the glory of God. The glory of God who fills these earthen vessels with all the grace so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God does it all. He just says, humble yourself before me. Watch what I'm going to do. I'll lift you up. I'm going to shine through your life. You don't need to strive. You don't need to fear. You don't need to be anxious about anything. God says, in effect, I got this. What are the two greatest words in the Bible? Two greatest words. Where's my son? What are the two greatest words in the Bible? What is it? Trust God. Trust God. Trust God. Look in your concordance. How many times does God say, trust me? Trust me. Here's myth number four. The humble do not need praise. True or false? John MacArthur said, when a person becomes a Christian, that person is there and then declaring war on hell. And guess what? Hell fights back. When God's people says, let us arise and build, the devil says, let me arise and oppose. Every time. It's us against the world, us against the flesh, us against the devil. And we need all the encouragement we can get. Nehemiah. How many have read the book of Nehemiah? Rich book. Nehemiah went back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. When you read Nehemiah, he encouraged the people while they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. He encouraged them. Jesus encouraged his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. You read John chapter 14 through 16. And Paul constantly encouraged those he discipled. You read the book of Philippians. You read 2 Timothy. What better examples, Nehemiah, Jesus, Paul, could we find of the value of encouragement in Christian ministry? What better way to encourage one another than through the appropriate use of genuine praise? It's okay. It's okay. You're doing a good job. I'm proud of you. Keep going. Oh, thank you. Thank you. 
Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Isn't that beautiful? Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. What does he do? He thanks God, praises God. He's praising those people for their faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Second Thessalonians we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is what? Increasing. Is, is, is Paul praising those people? Is he encouraging those people? Absolutely. Should we encourage one another? Yes. Yes. How can we do so if we're not in church? How can we do so if we're not in many church? How can we do so if we're not around each other? How many need encouragement? Yeah, get in fellowship. Get around some other growing, maturing, humbled Christians. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for revealing to us our true need of you and that we cannot, should not lean on our own understanding but rather acknowledge you in all of our ways, trust in you with all of our heart, and you would make our path straight. Thank you that we don't have to be anxious or fearful of anything. Thank you, Lord, our goal is to humble ourselves before you and before one another. We just thank you, Lord. Have your way in our life. We come to your table, we ask your spirit to search our hearts, and if there's any prideful, arrogant, non-humble way in us, Lord, convict us of those things that we may confess them to you, repent of them, and Lord, come to your table with clean hands. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.